I talk about what I call the happy chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin. So the first, uh, an endorphin. So the first thing to know about them is that they're not designed to be on all the time. Every time you take a step, if you have a positive expectation, then your brain releases reward chemicals because you perceive that you're going toward a reward. That's what stimulates your happy chemicals. In order to build new pathways in your brain, first you have to become aware of the old pathways. And then, and the way you do that is just look at the patterns in your behavior. I'm Coach Des, mindset motivator and lifestyle entrepreneur. My mission is to help you crush your self-limiting beliefs and embrace being unapologetically you. The Born Unbreakable podcast brings you inspirational stories from all over the world that will empower you to unlock your unbreakable spirit. I'd love to partner with you on your next breakthrough. Go to bornunbreakable.com to schedule a free transformational call. Action begins today. Are you looking for a one-stop shop in Las Vegas where you can comfortably stay and host an event? Athena Estate is located in Southwest Las Vegas, just 10 minutes from the Strip and offers everything you need. On over an acre of land, this indoor-outdoor venue is perfect for an intimate retreat, a small wedding, or a milestone birthday. We offer a variety of packages and services that will fit your needs and your budget. Book with us by December 26th and receive 20% off your stay or event. Visit staydorado.com, that's S-T-A-Y-D-O-R-A-D-O.com to learn more. We look forward to customizing your next experience. Welcome to the Born Unbreakable podcast. I'm your host, Coach Des, and I have an amazing guest today. Dr. Loretta Bruning, and we are going to talk about positive psychology along with a number of other topics. She has studied much of these things. She actually used to be a professor at the University of California, which is my alma mater. I went to UC San Diego, had an amazing experience there. And this topic is so timely, I think, because we're, we're in a time when there's a lot going on in the world and we still are coming through a, a pandemic. There's, there's still the remnants of living in a new way and people emotionally and mentally have been taxed in terms of living in the world where we are almost in a hybrid format where we do much of what Loretta and I are doing right now, being on a virtual screen, two different places, being able to engage in this great conversation today, um, and still, you know, moving in the world with in-person interactions. But one thing I say with confidence is we're striving to um, work on those chemicals that help us to stay in a place of, of being happy so we can be our best and can, can contribute positively to the world around us. So I'd love to be able to talk more about that with her today. The other mention is Loretta is the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute. She's the author of several books. So I'll let her talk about those and also what she's working on right now. So thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to be here. Well, let's start with your background. How did you get into this world of study? 
Um, well, when I was young, I was surrounded by a lot of unhappiness. So I think that's why I was always trying to figure out like, what is everybody so upset about? Because there was no obvious reason. So over the years, I studied psychology. And, you know, when you study in school, you often get a simplistic view of the world, which suggests that our society is broken and there's some perfect society somewhere else and everything, everybody will be happy as soon as society is fixed. So I accepted that because, you know, I was a kid and trusted my teachers. But then as the years went by, so I became a professor myself. I have my own children. And I saw that everything didn't work the way they said. It wasn't that students are motivated and children are happy if you do everything the way your professor said. So that's what motivated me to look deeper. And I was able to study every different branch of psychology because that was not my primary pr career. I was a professor of management. So I wasn't forced to stick to one paradigm as people who are licensed may be forced to do. So mm -hmm. what I stumbled on was the animal brain. And that changed everything for me because when we feel good, it's because our brain is releasing a certain chemical and animals have the same chemicals. And I was just stunned. And in animals, these chemical chemicals trigger behaviors that are more obvious in animals because the animal doesn't try to cover it up or hold back. And when you see what these chemicals do to animals, it's like, oh my God, this is what people are doing all the time. So that's why I um, started doing what I'm doing. Wow, that is that is incredible. And that is the interesting thing about being a human is that we can do things like mask our emotions, you know, and there's the there's an intricacy and a complexity to the human to human behavior and how how we show up. So I'm curious because I do believe that happiness is something it's a state that everyone asks themselves how how can I get more of that where we we've faced more uh, statistics have shown that we have faced more than ever suicide depression anxiety uh, and that's exacerbated by all the reactions that happen through the speed of technology and all the information that comes to us. And in the digital age, what has been so prevalent is the, the likes and the follows and the comments and everything on social media is just put a greater lens on and expanded people's perception of what happiness is because it's now more visible to those who are on those platforms um, and a greater comparison, right? That's happening of, oh my gosh, look at what's going on with this person and that person and this celebrity and this, you know, and it's just this constant thing if you um, use those, use those uh, ways to engage. So given that landscape, and, and just, you know, my commentary on people wanting to move towards happiness. What is, what is your study shown you about how people can actually become happier people? So I've written many books about this, so I'm going to try to boil it down very short. Okay. So I talk about 
what I call the happy chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin. So the first, uh, an endorphin. So the first thing to know about them is that they're not designed to be on all the time. They're designed to turn on for very specific reasons in that specific moment when you need that specific motivation. And if it was on all the time, it wouldn't be good for you. It would cause the wrong behavior. So what I explain in all of my books is what, what motivation is created by each of the chemicals, what turns it on, and to understand healthy ways of turning it on because each of us is trying to turn it on in whatever worked for us in our past because that's how the brain works. Whenever you feel good, neurons connect and that wires you to repeat that particular behavior. And that's why we all find ourselves repeating things that we might not want to do. And when you know how your brain works, then you can do the work to rewire it, but it is work sort of like learning a foreign language is rewiring yourself. So wow. that's a short answer, but I'm happy yeah. to you know, go into whatever you want. And so make sure to pick up Dr. Bruning's books, which I'll put in the show notes so we can learn more of the, the mechanics, mechanics of each of those things. Um, what, are, what are some examples? I think that would be helpful, right? So sure. when, we, when, we, when we get into the detail of, of what people are going, going through, uh, like let's say COVID as an example, you know, that's, that's something that that's still here that we're still dealing with. And so that puts people out, you know, of their operating natural operating state. Um, so like illness, when somebody is, you know, really trying to overcome that, but stay in a positive state so they could get back to normal. What, what are some things in, in that situation that can, can help? So the real thing I think is self-direction. So when I accomplish something, that triggers the good feeling of dopamine. And the reason for that is not because of some higher virtue, but because our ancestors had to look for food constantly. And they were hungry, and they'd look around, and they'd see food in the distance. And it's like, oh, maybe there's food on the other side of that mountain. And you had to do hard work, and then maybe you crossed the mountain, and there was no food. So it's that urge to take the next step to search for something that will meet your needs. Now, we all do that in the context that we live in. So before COVID, maybe you had more social pressure and social structure around you. But then during COVID, you were sort of left to self-management. And if you weren't used to that, then you weren't activating your own dopamine because you weren't taking that next step. But anyone could do that. <clears throat> and all of these have like a good side and a bad side. So maybe when you were in the office, then you complained about being in the office and you complain about driving to the office. Then when you're not in the office, then you complain about that. So that's the other part of like, we have happy chemicals and we have unhappy chemicals and we trigger our unhappy chemicals with neural pathways of whatever triggered them before. And I have a few books on unhappy chemicals too. So that's again, that's just a short answer. So happy to answer whatever, wherever you want to go. Okay, what about this? I feel like anybody listening can relate to this. Negative people. Okay, so in, in our lives, we're, we're all trying our best. We want to put our best foot forward. 
and go out there and smile at the person in the Starbucks line and say thank you and have good good vibes that we generate so that they can emanate back to us. But there are some people, maybe like you just described, that's kind of what triggered my my thinking, where it's always doomsday. It's kind of that that nature of, well, this happened before, so it's going to happen again. You know, this X person did this in the past, so I can't expect anything better to happen in the future. You know, there's, it's, it's always just kind of this attitude towards mm-hmm. the worst case scenario versus the best case scenario. And that person that anybody's listening that's thinking of right now, they probably can picture. <laughs> can that person change? Is there actual things that you like chemically and behavior wise that can start to shift? that sort of thinking? Oh, good question. Um, Yeah, they can if they want to, but they may not want to because they may be getting a reward from being that way. And they may be thinking everybody else is negative. So each of us sees the world from our own little perspective of what's going to benefit me. And nobody can admit that, but that's the way the brain works. So, right? So, um, I'm like you, you know, when I hear negativity from people, it's like, oh, I don't want to be around that. So by the way, I should just say that this is the, I have a book called The Science of Positivity, Stop Negative Thought Patterns by Changing Your Brain Chemistry. And the point of this book is not only can you rewire yourself, but it's the only way to be happy. So if you wait for other people to be happy, this is part of it. It's like, you have, you feel like you have to share in other people's unhappiness in order to be a good person. And there's a lot of social pressure, social reward for doing that. But if you wait for everybody to be happy, life is going to pass you by. So you have to make the decision to produce it inside yourself, whether or not other people are happy. And they may even accuse you of not being loyal to the unhappy cause, right? Um, So first, you have to decide that you want to be happy regardless of what other people say. Another reason people don't decide that is because they think, why should I let them off the hook, right? You think it's someone else's job to make you happy. And if you just make yourself happy, that you're letting them off the hook. The way you got that idea is because well, maybe something bad did happen to you in the past, or maybe even nothing bad happened, but you got the idea that somebody else is supposed to make you happy. But life is passing you by, and if you don't decide to find your own healthy ways to stimulate your happy chemicals, it's just not going to happen. So um, how can a person do it? So first you have to decide, and then the second simple answer is repetition. So just like learning a foreign language, you learn by repetition. So you choose new behaviors that you'd like to have, and then they feel awkward at first, but with repetition, they start to feel like your new normal, and you give yourself a reward in the short run for doing the repetition. So simple Mm -hmm. answer. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I I tend to believe, because if I I do a lot of mindset work, and I, I tend to believe that you're a, you're the good old product of your environment in terms of what you choose. I, I understand that there's you can't necessarily choose everything because you you might be in a situation where there's things you can control and there's things you can't. But for example, what you watch, what you listen to, yep. what you read, 
those are choices to me that yep. you can make. And that's independent. Yep. Not related to what somebody else told and you to do. Surround themselves with negative inputs. Yep. So so in my in my mind, those are things that are relatively immediate and can be repeated. If you choose to to watch certain programming, listen to let's say positive books or podcasts, things that are readily available and and a lot often free. YouTube, I mean, places where you can go and even affordable because even books today that you would buy to listen to um, are affordable or Kindle. So, so things are, are, are available to us, yes. right? But it's a choice that we have to make those, those kinds of decisions. So in, in my head, that's, that's, that's one answer. I want to ask you about the, the Inner Mammal Institute because I, I had mentioned that as something that you founded and you started to study the animal brain. What was the, what was the impetus for that decision? Um, so a few things. Um, uh, uh, so I come from an academic background, so my interest was always in just making this information available to more people and looking for an umbrella concept that was at the core of what I was trying to do rather than the title of any individual book. And interestingly, in the beginning, I mostly imagined it as a library um, because, you know, that I'm old enough that I lived in that world, but also because um, the animal studies that I'm talking about that, um, and I should go into more of that, um, they are no longer mentioned because there's a new fads in philosophy that have um, changed the view of human nature, in my opinion, ignoring what has been known by scientists for 100 years. And so I started collecting books with these studies because since the internet in the past 20 years, no one is putting this information on the internet hardly. So it's only in books. So, so I'll, I'll just specifically mention the studies. So um, monkeys are very competitive with each other. And when a monkey manages to one-up the monkey next to it, it gets a little shot of serotonin released. And it feels good. Like, let's say you're playing poker with someone and you get a card. It's like, oh, I'm going to win. So that's a natural feeling. I want to win. But that has become so taboo to acknowledge this natural feeling that, so that's part of it. And the other thing is research on live monkeys became taboo. So all the studies based on that were withdrawn. So for all these reasons, this whole reality that researchers have known and that humans have known before that, that animals are extremely competitive and even quite nasty and even quite violent to each other in their competition for resources. And now in the academic world and in the psychology world, you're being told that animals are altruistic and cooperative and our society has messed things up and we need to go back to that. It's just totally false. And so that, <laughs> that's what motivates me. That is really interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I think animals are just more raw because they don't have the human condition 
They don't have, have the self-restraint that comes from the large human cortex. That's right. If and the cortex is trained properly, mm -hmm. otherwise mm -hmm. you don't have self-restraint. You're like a monkey. Yeah, right. But we but we've learned so much through through the ages, right? Through the, through species. Um, yeah, but part yeah. of what you learn is verbal um, polish to justify what your inner mammal is doing. So for example, mm -hmm. so my ancestors were all Sicilian. And so I've researched and read a lot about the Sicilian mafia. So when they kill people, they could give you very fancy philosophy to justify it. Okay. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that any any historical repeated action yes. comes with a story of justification of some kind. Yep. Yep. You know, there were people in World War II that did certain things and had a whole philosophy about why those things occurred and, um, and, and many religious wars and, and anything that has, has, you know. Gang wars, put everything. Yeah. But the bottom line is that we have a human cortex and then we have a limbic brain inherited from animals and they're not connected in the way you may think. In that, that means that the animal part of your brain, the part that we've inherited from animals, it can't talk. So it can't tell you in words why it has this reaction. So the human part of your brain does all the talking and it thinks it knows everything. So when you think oh, I'm really mad at that guy, I'm going to kill him, or whatever other nasty response that you might have, that your human brain comes up with this justification because you don't understand that the feeling is coming from the mammalian part of your brain. Yeah. I listen to a lot of true crime, like Dateline. So there's a lot of stories of justification of why people did things that they did. <laughs> so exactly. A lot is going on there. But and then only... you have the journalist that asks yeah. you, and then they accept that superficial verbal brain response, and nobody mm -hmm. is consciously aware of their mammalian wiring. And that's what all my books are about. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I, I, I love hearing that history, and I do think that there's so much fascination in that. So as, as I mentioned, I'll put the links to your books into the show notes so people can dive a little bit further into more, you know, more into what we have time for today. But I also want to ask you what you're working on today, because before we started recording, you did mention writing. And so what, what is your current inspiration? Thank you for asking. I'm working on a book called Why You're Unhappy. Okay. And it's not all the usual things that you're hearing, which is sort of the blame game, that you learn to blame your unhappiness on others or on society. Um, but what to put it in one sentence, you're unhappy because our brain is very good at producing unhappiness. So in order to restrain that and redirect it, it's a very complex skill. And nobody is teaching you that skill because they're, you know, in the interest of time, I'll just say that they're throwing a disease label at you or you're uh, going toward a disease label because that's the mindset that you're taught.
Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how labels can have such an impact on us. I interviewed this incredible woman who, her name is Amanda Fu Ryland, and she just recently came out with a book, but she had this talk that was pretty profound. It's on YouTube. It's actually called Labelist Living. And she, the uh, catalyst for her talk was uh, she had gotten diagnosed with cancer. And so like many others, that was a label. Cancer was a label. And yeah. with that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, or uh, interpretations of what life meant as a patient, person, individual. And so her point, which I thought was so great, she expanded it beyond that. I think that was a really good pointed one. But anything, you could be a woman, you could say, you know, a particular race or religion. And with that comes a whole set of things. And what if you were just who you were as an individual? You're Loretta, I'm Des. And there's, there's so much more to that than what meets the eye. And so I think that the boundaries that we sometimes place on labels and identity are part of what keeps or holds us back from living in a space of greater happiness because of associations that are, that are negative that we somehow have to break out of. You know? Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's why I was so I was so fascinated with that. I was like, yeah, we do yeah, have a Yeah, yeah. And it's not to say that there aren't very painful situations. Right. But, right. But we all perceive the situation through the lens of whatever happened in our past because they're real physical pathways. And right. It's, it's hard to see things in another way. And I'm not saying that we need to see things in some utopian way, but what my focus is always, um, focus on your next step. <clears throat> focus on your next step because that's what triggers happy chemicals. That's what the animal brain is designed to do. Yeah. I do think that's a big uh, point because um, I was in an executive coaching session Yesterday, in fact, with a client. And uh, part of our discussion was related to an individual who was struggling because they were stuck in past situations, which was keeping them from thriving in their current situation. And so I, I, I think that is an often occurrence is people kind of really... Uh, having a difficult time moving forward from something, small or big, and sometimes uh, it accumulates. And then that accumulation turns into like the thing that I get fascinated about that I like working on is self-limiting beliefs because enough things happen and then all of a sudden you tell yourself, well, I'm not, I must not be because, you know, these three things happen and therefore like I'm incapable of some fill in the blank. And so I just, um, you know, I do want to acknowledge how difficult it can be to move on, 
but I'm, you know, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts for people of how, how do you do that? How do you stay kind of future forward or looking forward to the next step when this thing that has occurred or series of things that you just can't somehow break past? Sure. So um, to make it simple, so every time you take a step, if you have a positive expectation, then your brain releases reward chemicals because you perceive that you're going toward a reward. That's what stimulates your happy chemicals. So how can you have positive expectations when you already have negative expectations? And so the simple answer is to make that next step very small so that you have a positive expectation and then break it down and then give yourself a reward after that step so that your brain links the good feeling of the reward to the act of taking that step. And this is exactly the method used by animal trainers. So mm. if you watch animal training videos, it's really amazing that animals trained in a few minutes. So if you teach a dog, if you tell a dog, do a flip and I'll give you a steak, the dog will never do it because it doesn't know what a flip is. But if every time the dog goes like this, like turns his head, you give him like a tiny sliver of a steak, it will turn his head again and again because it wants to get more steak. And then soon it will be doing a whole flip. And you could see this on videos and it will do a whole flip. And then you only have to give it a little sliver of a steak and it'll do the whole flip because now it has built a new neural pathway that says, oh, that's a thing that I can do and get a reward. And that's what we need to do. Yeah. So Dogs what would are be that thing that you could do to get a reward? So an example of that, you know, a simple example would be, I'm going to fill out one job application and then have a cup of coffee. And don't have your cup of coffee until you fill out the job application, for example. Yeah, I love doing that. I love doing those things. Because all day long, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of things that I want, but I'm thinking of things I need to do. And so it's such a good way to create rewards by being productive. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, you know, some people will have the whole pot of coffee before they do the thing. So that is the self-regulation skill of you're always creating your own reward structure. You learn to yeah. do that from the reward structure you grew up with. But just like how you learned your native language without trying, but you could learn a new language, but it's hard work. But we know it's possible to learn a new language. And in the same way that we can learn to give ourselves a new reward structure. Yes. Oh, that's so good. That is so, that is so good because there's small things that can make a big difference, you know, in the day. Okay, I'm not going to buy that thing that I really want until I finish, you know, A, B, and C. And then now, now you've got, you know, your momentum going before you reward yourself, right? That's that's a part of a thing that we could train ourselves to do. And I, I love the example that you gave about dogs. One of the people that I was so fascinated watching still to this day is Caesar Milan. What, what he, what he's able to do with training dogs because, oh, you know, yes, I love him. Yeah. Have these unruly dogs 
that just like, no, they don't listen. They, they, they bark and they do all these things. And he comes in the very first day and he just does a whole makeover on doggy behavior, you know, from the way they walk them, the way they talk to them, the commands that are used, the energy that you emit. And these people are like, this is a whole brand new dog. I can't believe it. Yes, How did this exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I read his book when I was raising my children. And I thought, oh, my God, I really messed up because like it was it's like I was giving the treat for the wrong behavior. And he's so good at explaining, Cesar Milan, why we often reward the wrong behavior. Because, you know, when the dog is being bad, they they reward it because they think, oh, maybe this will calm it down. And people often do that with their children, you know? And then that wires them that the wrong behavior is going to get the reward. Yeah, yeah. And I and I always talk about because one one of the things that I do is um, I lead change management engagements with clients. And in change, often what I talk about is how what gets rewarded gets re uh, repeated, right? And because you're reinforcing something. So yes. if you continue to reinforce a particular outcome, then that exactly. is going to recur. Um, but if you want to change that behavior, then you have to create a different incentive and reward system for people to shift from point A to point B um, because we're conditioned ourselves with what we know right so exactly. it's, it's easier said than done but but i agree with you and part you know part of it i think too is when you set those incremental goals so yes. we're, we're sitting now um you know moving into a new month the month of march and um in the beginning of the year a lot of excitement, right? People are like, oh my gosh, this is the year. This is the year that I'm going to lose the weight, that I'm going to save the money, that I'm going to, you're right, like you just get, there's some kind of reset that happens in the world after it turns to a new year, you know? And then the, the dopamine and the other chemicals, then they like wear off. And then it's March. And you haven't been to the gym, but you were there like the first two weeks of January, but you just didn't have the consistency. So it's like, you know what it is that you need to do to get to the results that you're looking for, but it takes the first step of showing up and then showing up repeatedly to get the different outcome. And so I think that is part of the challenge. It's easy so to start to continue. So you were asking about self-sabotage or, you know, why don't people continue? So let's talk about like oppositionalism or rebellion. So mm -hmm. I think there's some, um, that's a learned thing. So mm -hmm. um, an example, simple example would be like if a person wants to lose weight, but somehow in their mind, eating the food was like a rebellion when they were young and rebellion feels good because when you're feeling like you're in the one down position, the little monkey who's always dominated by the big monkey, anything that helps you feel like you're in, you have power 
that feels good and your brain wires you to repeat that. So one person rebelled by doing X, another person rebelled by doing Y. If you stop doing that thing, now you feel like a little monkey again. So if someone asks you not to eat that cupcake, if you decide to deprive yourself from eating that cupcake, then your inner mammal goes back to feeling like a little monkey. Now, if you're trying to lose weight to please someone else, then even more, you're like, oh, I don't, why should I give up this cupcake just to please them? Now, it gets even stickier because what if it's bedtime? And when you were young, you rebelled by refusing to go to bed or refusing to go to sleep once you were in bed. So now, as an adult, you have insomnia because you, you don't want to yeah, it manifests itself yeah. based on these patterns and behaviors that we have learned. Yeah, it's real deep neural connection, just like the way you speak your native language. So nobody is, nobody is born speaking any language. And yet when I speak my native language, it just comes to me because I built those circuits from repetition when I was young. And that's exactly what your emotional responses are. Yeah, wow. Well, and I know that there's a many folks who look to um, EMDR, neurolinguistic, you know, programming, learning how to use different language, different thinking to create the new neuropathway. Have you, is that accurate i mean how much have you seen I, I i don't know enough to say like all the statistics and and what that is i just feel that over the course of me interviewing different people and some d minimal research that that is something more people are turning to to try and shift behaviors that in their more mature age where they actually acknowledge recognize and have been given feedback <laughs> about some of their behaviors they're willing to do something, they're just not sure how, and they've turned to some professionals to assist them. Is that anything that you've learned about, studied, heard more about of? Of NLP, Neuro Linguistic mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, it's it's a, it's a good method. Um, there are a lot of different methods for doing this, and um, people can find the one that works for them, and that's a good one. Uh, it's more of a group activity. Um, mm -hmm. And um, there's so many different methods, so, but that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I, and I wonder if there is value to, much like other ways of learning, and even in academia, I think back to the college days, right, where you had a big lecture, then you had your TA with a smaller group, you went from 300 to 30 people, and then you had office hours where you got to be one-on-one -on -one with your professor and go, okay, I still want to talk about X, Y, Z topic that you discussed in the lecture. So there's these different arenas and situations we put ourselves in that stimulate different kinds of learning. So I imagine, you know, when we're trying to learn different behaviors, there could be some value to both the group setting, the individual, you know, learning and, and I just go back to the, the, the simplistic principle of repetition. The yeah. more you can find yourself in situations where you can repeat a behavior that you desire, the easier it's going to be. It's yeah. like, I always get fascinated by the Olympics. 
That's right. Look at by what? The Olympics, oh, you know, the sports. Okay. sports oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see how fast they run or the mountains that they ski down or, or a Michael Phelps and, you know, all the things that he does in the pool. It's like, how, how do you, you get become this remarkable? Well, they train. Well, so it never fails when you read about these people. It's always that they started when they were young. So I read about Michael Phelps when he was like two years old, three years old, his older brother was swimming and his mother would pull him out of bed in order to drive him to his brother's swim team meeting before school. So he's standing around at the pool with nothing to do. <laughs> See? And the competitiveness with the older brother and the respect that that activity got from his parents. But I really want to emphasize to people that you don't need to do something huge to feel good. I think we're often pressured like some superstar, you know, and people are so pressured with something gigantic that then they give up. And so small steps are enough to trigger your happy chemicals as long as you keep taking them. Oh, I think that's so important. That goes back to the beginning of, you know, this episode when I talked about the landscape that we're in, because comparison is, is somewhat rampant, I think, unless you've, you know, really lived a disciplined life to watch your screen time and, you know, this, this kind of thing. Um, and that's, you know, this, this whole notion, I think that, that as, as a human, as human beings in the world, you know, I, I, I think we're, wanting to find what that balance looks like of fulfillment mm -hmm. have those the you know what what are people looking for peace joy balance you know i i, I mean it's so it's from funny. my perspective they're looking for dopamine serotonin and oxytocin so we haven't talked about oxytocin yet. So that's the one that in human terms is called belonging or community. But mm -hmm. it's more frustrating and people should know why because otherwise they blame things. So okay. when animals are in a herd, they annoy each other because if I'm in a herd and I try to eat grass, that grass has been peed on by another animal. And when I bend down to eat it, their horns are going to poke me. So I would really rather go off and do my own thing. But then when I go off, a predator could eat me in an instant. So then I feel insecure and endangered when I go off alone. So we're always trying to balance the frustration of too much togetherness with the fear that a predator is going to eat me if I go off on my own. So this is in all of us, and it doesn't do you any good to blame society or blame your partner or blame your tribe. This is the, you're, to take responsibility for your doing this constant weighing. And when you have a tribe, they get on your nerves. But when you don't have a tribe, then you feel endangered and left out, and then you blame other people for that feeling. So this is, this is, the real now the same thing with dopamine and serotonin so serotonin is when i feel like i'm in the one-up position then my brain turns on serotonin but if i had that all the time 
then I would think I was one up all the time and I'd act like a jerk and get into trouble. Or from a monkey perspective, a monkey would get into fights that it would lose and that would endanger its life. So we're only meant to have little spurts of serotonin at the appropriate moment. And with dopamine, dopamine releases your reserve tank of energy. So if you mm. see a fruit tree in the distance and you're going to run there to get that food, but it's stupid to waste your energy if you, unless you, until you see something that you can get. So that's how your brain works. Okay. What about the narcissist? <laughs> Are there people that can dial down the chemicals? Because I think there's some individuals that when I, when I meet folks and I, I get into coaching conversations with them and they they talk about, you know, their environments, there, that is often the t uh, a character that is brought forward. Somebody who may be in a constant state of one up, like you described, and they do act like a jerk. Is there something for those? Well, maybe we can tone your chemicals down so that you're not creating such you know conflict in your environments. So if you always think you're in the one up position, then you will take unrealistic risks and then slowly over time, as the risks get bigger and bigger, then you start to have more anxiety. Like, oh my God, I could lose everything. And when you have that anxiety, then you'll do something to quell the anxiety. So typically, you know, drugs and alcohol. And you, then you still keep taking the giant risks. And it's ironic that you ask that because guess what I just watched last night was this great TV series called We Crashed. So it's the story of WeWork, that company that was built by taking these unbelievable risks. And then the founder, you know, was always at the precipice of losing the whole company and drugged himself. So that's one example. But then there's yeah. another example. So the biggest surfer in history, um, Irons, Jeremy Irons, I think. And so, I think the first name was not Jeremy. It started with a J, but I'm forgetting what it was. So when I was in Hawaii, I saw his name posted everywhere. We love you, Jeremy Irons or whatever. So I, then when I got home, I was like, who is this person? I read about, he was, you know, long story short, he was a surfer who took re risks that were too big. So mm -hmm. the reason when he was a kid, he lived right near the beach in Hawaii and there was a lot of conflict and tension going on in his home. So he would go and hang out at the beach. So in the beach, at the beach, he would sometimes get abused by bigger kids. And then he was getting abused at home. And so he started surfing, like when he was a little kid and he would surf all the time. But when you're surfing, you're taking a huge risk. And here's this little kid, you know, could almost get killed, but that's how he became a champion surfer by like, it's sort of, you do this hard thing because the situation you're in is so bad that you, that hard thing seems better. But then gradually over time, I think because he was doing such dangerous things, he couldn't sleep. So then mm -hmm. he started medicating himself and then he was going out and surfing while he was on the meds. And I think, I think, trying to remember, I don't think he died while he was surfing. I think he killed himself. 
because the meds catch up with you. Your, your brain adjusts to them and you can no longer make the happy chemicals on your own. And mm -hmm. then they interact. So it's really bad, this whole medication strategy. Yeah, yeah, that's dangerous. There's a lot of danger behind that. But your, your examples are so spot on. When you were talking, I, I interestingly enough about the WeWork, I was thinking about the show called American Greed. I'm sorry, American what? American Greed. Okay. Greed, yeah. And it's a lot of stories like your, um, you know, uh, what's, the, what's the guy's name with the Ponzi schemes? Um, like Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff. You know, uh, that's that's it. Uh, one that was on there was WeWork. Um, different individuals who gained some success and then figured out that they could go a step further to bamboozle, whatever word you can use. And you scan. know what happened to Bernie Madoff that they never mentioned? His father was doing it and he was forced to help his father. And that's almost always the case, just like in the mafia, these people had to participate in their parents' violence. That's how you get wired to do those things. Yeah, yeah. And and often when you, when you uh, look at the history of criminals, as, as an example, there was something in the history through family members that- That normalize it. I normalize those those behaviors that are are not shouldn't be you know normalized but um yeah this it's so it's so fascinating it's so fascinating because we can we can learn so much from these different you know shows and and books and things that are out there um but i want to you know as we as we close the interview i want to just touch on a some some things that will help people get to know you just a little better. So one of the things that I'm always curious about is success principles. You know, di different individuals have found, have found principles that they hold true to themselves that have helped them to be uh, more successful in their lives. What is one of the success principles that you've lived by in your life, Loretta? Hmm. Um, well, uh, because I'm aware of this social comparison thing that the brain does, that I know that if I have any bad feelings about this, that I'm creating them myself. And then I could change those feelings by changing what thoughts, what comparisons that I'm making. And yeah. um, it took me, you know, a long time to <laughs> rewire myself to do these things. Yeah. Ah, yeah, I imagine. Uh, when I was young, for example, I had trouble even making eye contact with people uh, because of a lot of fear and social anxiety that I grew up with. And I actually had to train myself. I practiced um, when I was paying for something at a store in the olden days when you used money. And like I would, you know, when I would give or receive money that I would look the person in the eye. And I noticed like even that, like it was hard, you know, and then if they didn't look me back, then I got upset, but then I had to realize that they were just busy doing their job. So mm -hmm. I um, 
so this is the kind of like little, little practice that you could build into your day to rewire yourself. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I like that a lot. What is a self-limiting belief that you've had to overcome? Um, uh, I guess I, you know, I often felt like people were ignoring me and I would feel very hurt by that. And um, for good reason, because I was one of those babies where my mother immediately got pregnant after I was born. So I was ignored, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so that wired me. And, and we all feel ignored. And especially, you know, when you think you're doing something good and then you expect a certain reaction and that expectation is your, in your own head. But if you don't get it, then you trigger the disappointment circuit that you built in your past, which for me was like a very big, very deep disappointment circuit. So mm -hmm. yeah, so then I had to really learn that everybody else is just a mammal doing their own thing. They're just trying to get their recognition. What I always say is you, your brain rewards you for getting recognition, but you live in a world where 8 billion other people want recognition as much as you do. And then mm -hmm. I just let go of it. Yeah, that's so, yeah, that is so true. What, if, if you could give a last piece of advice to anyone who's listening, what, what would that be? Um, so in order to build new pathways in your brain, first you have to become aware of the old pathways and then and the way you do that is just look at the patterns in your behavior and then look for early experiences that fit that pattern and then say, oh, I'm not going to criticize myself. This pattern is just a real highway in my brain and I'm going to build an exit ramp and a new highway. Yeah, that's great. Build a new highway. I love that. Let's put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> that's a good one. That's a good one. Loretta, how can people find you and the books that you have, the work that you're doing? How would they do that? So my website is innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. And I have lots of books and lots of free resources, including videos and podcasts and infographics and slideshows and everything a person could want. And my books are really written for... Um, the average person to be um, upbeat and not morose <laughs> no, and not technical. That's good. That's good. That means many people can go and read them and gain something and understand them. <laughs> so that's, that's important. So I, I will definitely put the link to your website in the show notes so people can have access to the resources that you're talking about. I'm so grateful for this conversation and it is definitely an encouragement of reflecting on my own patterns, behaviors, and things that I could do better. And hopefully for anybody who's listened, it's given you a moment of pause to do the same. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the great questions.
you like